Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Michael, if this is your first time, uh, this is our Sutra Study Sunday. Uh, we pretty much look at a different Buddhist sutra every Sunday night. Um, tonight, we will be looking at the Kula Sunyata Sutta. Um, this is a fun sutra or sutta um, because it is one of, if not the earliest Buddhist discourse on this idea of emptiness which in Sanskrit is shunyata. In Pali, it's spelled sunata, like that. And kula actually means the shorter emptiness sutra. There's actually a longer one. Maybe that was earlier. These things actually don't always work that way in Buddhism. Sometimes the larger are later because they were more uh, elaborated upon. So just because it's small or long doesn't always distinguish which came first. This is the shorter one. It's in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, the uh, middle length discourses of the Buddha, sutra number 121, if you're interested. Um, one thing that's interesting to know about this is that in the Majjhima Nikaya, in this collection of suttas, the third part of it is called the Shunyata Vaga. It's a section just on this idea of shunyata or sunata, emptiness. What's important about this is that some folks consider emptiness to be a Mahayana Buddhist idea, sort of a Mahayana development. And why I wanted to do this sutra tonight is to point out, no, 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 emptiness or shunyata is a very original fundamental part of Buddha Dharma and goes back to the early discourses. Now, of course, I'm going to be dealing with this idea of shunyata or emptiness. I'm going to be dealing with it tonight um, kind of genealogically, meaning we're going to look at this sutra as an early, if not the earliest instance of this idea of shunyata, emptiness. And we're going to look at what the sutra says about it. I will more or less probably read the whole sutra in, in its entirety. And we're going to look at how it is this like, kernel of an idea and so then after I read the sutra we'll talk about how the Mahayana took this idea further but again in my opinion it's not a new idea in that sense as, as I usually do I want to just explain a few ideas about this sutra so that I can kind of just read it through uh, without stopping and being like oh by the way this is what that means and this is what that means um, so a few ideas to know about this sutra. Um, I'm, this is a great segue from uh, last week's sutra. Last week's sutra was the Metta Sutta, the, the Sutra on Loving Kindness. And I did a lot of talking about what are called the Brahma Viharas, the abodes of Brahma. And because we were particularly looking at the first Brahma Vihara, which is this Metta or Loving Kindness abode. And last week, what I mentioned was, or I emphasized this idea of the vihara, the abode. And I, I emphasized this idea that Buddhism spends a lot of time discoursing on the base 
or the foundation or the station or the abode of practice. Like where it where it's happening, but when they talk about a base, actually an ayatana, when they talk about a base of meditation, what they mean is, and what the sutra is going to be referring to in terms of concentration, is this, what do you base your concentration on? What do you put it on? What is it based on? And this idea of stations or bases will be just that. Where are you basing your meditation? And what's going to be a process here is, actually this sutra is going to use the, uh, the overarching metaphor of descent. If you recognize the Brahma Viharas are sort of an ascent, and there's these stations. These stations or abodes are also likened to rungs on a ladder. So this idea of you put your foot here and allows you to get up to the next rung, allows you to get up to the next rung. And so this language of base, foundation, station, abode, like keep that in mind when when thinking about Buddhism and why are they all doing all this talking about abodes and things like that. This sutra is actually going to be a very interesting, this happens in the beginning, but again, I don't want to interrupt it, so I'm just going to tell you. The Buddha is asked by Ananda, about the shunyata vihara. He asked the Buddha, like, what's with this shunyata vihara? So last week I spent a lot of time on this word vihara, abode, usually translated as abode, but a vihara is the original Buddhist word for like a kind of a monastery, and the word indeed does become equivalent to monastery, but originally what a vihara was was sort of like when the weather got bad or it was the rainy season or whatever and the monks would gather together typically like in a forest that makeshift little village that they would create would be a vihara and the idea being that after the rainy season or after the 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 weather got better that vihara is gone we're on we're on the move because that was an original mandate of buddhists was to not call anywhere home So a vihara was this kind of like interesting idea of like a temporary shelter home place for monks occasionally. But again, indeed, the idea eventually becomes equivalent to just a monastery. But what's interesting is that these Brahma viharas, right, from last week, these viharas, well, they're not forests and they're not necessarily gathering of bhikkhus, of monks and nuns. Those viharas are these heavenly abodes. Or again, places where my meditation is. So if metta is the first Brahma Vihara, the idea is is that I put my concentration on metta. It's founded on it. Right? Like that's the, again, the idea that we're working with here. So this is a, a sutta or sutra about the shunyata Vihara, the Vihara of emptiness the abode of emptiness. And the Buddha is asked, like, what's with the shunyata vihara and how do I get there? That's what this sutra is about. A couple more things you need to know, though, before we get there. A key um, turning point in this sutra is the Buddha is going to be talking about meditating on 
the forest, which is equivalent to vihara here, but vihara like our little gathering here. That foundation of mindfulness is then going to move to what the sutra is going to call earth. And I just want to spend a little bit of time on this idea because it's a little more profound, in my opinion, if you know it kind of exactly what they're talking about. Because in the context of the sutra in English, you would be inclined to think that the Buddha has asked the monks to move their foundation of their mindfulness from the forest to the earth, like the earth, like the planet. And that's an unfortunate aspect of language because um, earth is one of the four great elements, earth, fire, water, and air. And so when they say earth, they don't mean the earth, the planet, nor do they mean dirt, like sand, earth, gravel, uh, diatomaceous earth, right, is what always comes to my mind. These four great elements are far better understood as solidity, liquidity, temperature, and life. The idea of the four great elements in Indian philosophy is that all phenomena, me, this pillow, the table, all phenomena are the four great elements in varying degrees. And what that means is that all things can be understood in terms of the degree to which they are solid, the degree to which they are liquid, how, what temperature they are, and whether they have self-movement or not. Are they animated or not? So air does not mean oxygen. It actually means self-movement. Like the, oh my God, I keep breathing. I don't even know how I'm doing it, right? So that's air, which is a sign of life. Fire is temperature. And again, all things have a different temperature. Ice is cold. Uh, hot sand is hot, all of that. And then earth and water are these sort of flow, fluid, fluidity, and then solid. So when the Buddha asks the monks to move from the forest to earth, he means the earth element. He means solidity. Okay, and I just want to make that clear so that if you're listening along and if you're doing the meditation, I don't want you to all of a sudden like shift to some image of the planet that you're meditating on because it's that will lead you quite astray because what's happening is, is that the earth, this idea of solidity is going to give way to the idea of akasha, space. And the idea of space, it's a very, uh, Buddhism and, and Buddhists spend a lot of time on akasha, space. Akasha is a, a wild Indian philosophical idea um, it gets a little carried away in the New Age movement with the idea of the Akashic Records. I don't want to get all into Akashic Records, but this idea of Akasha or space is very interesting because what they're referring to is literally like space between things. And space is dependent upon, right? Determined by solidity. Right? Because, like, to understand this space is dependent upon that solid thing and that solid thing. So, space is an interesting 
what is that in like photography, right, where it's the negative space of solidity, kind of an idea, but it's, it's fascinating. So it's helpful to know the Buddha's talking about solidity when he then moves to space. And then to these other formless dhyanas, which we're gonna go through tonight and later on after I read the sutra, consciousness, nothingness, and then ultimately neither perception or non-perception. Okay, just hold off on all of that. One last thing. It's helpful to know that traditionally in Buddhism, there are 10 things you can focus or found your meditation or mindfulness on. These 10 things, earth, water, fire, and air, the four elements, the color blue-green, not blue or green, but bluish-green, the color yellow, the color red, and the color white, Akasha, this idea I just shared with you, Vijnana or consciousness. Sometimes there's an 11th, Aloka, this bright light of consciousness. Sometimes Aloka and Vijnana or consciousness, this is like all one idea. And it's the 10th. Uh, these are called Kashinas in Pali, uh, Krishna in Sanskrit, same idea, same word, same idea. And again, these are the 10. Buddha approved, Abhidharma approved, uh, Visuddhi Magga, Buddha Gosha approved, 10 foundations for producing dhyana. Dhyana being this deep trance like meditation. In Pali, it's dhyana, dhyana, right? The idea being actually that all other things besides these 10 are too amalgamated in order to bring about single-pointed awareness, if that makes sense. So the Buddha traditionally says, no, no, there's these 10 things that you can focus your attention on and they will bring about dhyana, okay? In this sutra, he's just gonna be using the earth and then, you know, space and consciousness in that regard. Um, but I just wanted you to know that there are traditionally these 10 uh, kashina, foundations of mindfulness, with the idea being that all other things are too amalgamated, right? And by the way, the, again, you, you would be founding your mindfulness, your sati, you would be putting your mindfulness on the concept of solidity, the concept of liquidity, the concept of temperature or the concept of life or movement, animation. And then traditionally, you would imagine a blue-green disc. This is a, also in Chinese, blue and green are the same color. They're shades of the one color. In, in the Western mind, those are two different colors, but actually Qing in Chinese is bluish-green. And of course, if you ever look at a deep forest, it truly does go vacillate between deep blue and green, and it's all one color. Yeah. And has this anything to do with on on malas with this, you know, four gates and in the middle the center is white and Buddha family. Mm -hmm. So these four colors correspond to the four elements and traditionally, especially in the um, Kala Chakra, the Wheel of Time mandala, which is the four elements, their four respective colors, and basically the earth and creation all around it. But the idea being that that mandala is super great for founding one's mindfulness because it contains, in a way, the 10 kashina. 
It's like a great mandala for that. And in fact, if you study mandalas, you will notice a predominance of blue, yellow, red, and white because those are considered... Uh, by the way, this is interesting just psychologically because the notion is, is that other colors are a little too like, whoa, whoa, crazy, but those four are somehow, again, conducive to dhyana. It's something to think about, right? Okay. Um, just a few other ideas. Again, uh, these, if you've ever heard of these, the um, uh, A-rupa dhyanas, the formless dhyanas, infinite space, infinite consciousness, infinite nothingness, and then neither perception nor non-perception, those are actually called the infinite ayatanas. And if you are here for the 12 link chain of causation and the 12 links, links is a bad word. They're actually ayatanas, meaning bases, the 12 bases. So there's a really interesting relationship here dharmically between the 12 link chain of causation, dependent origination, ayatanas, and then these ayatanas. Put your mind here, kind of an idea. So these are the ayatanas, otherwise known as the formless dhyanas. Earth, water, fire, and air are some produce the rupa dhyanas. And I think that's all you need to know going into this. Any questions before I, before I read it? I may still stop, you know how it goes, but. Um, okay, everybody ready for a sutra? Okay, the Kula Shunyata Sutra, the shorter sutra on emptiness. Which, by the way, I will say this. The, the traditional Theravada way to translate Shunyata is voidness. You see voidness more than emptiness. This uses voidness. I don't know if in, if I, in my reading of it I will uh, switch them or not. I sometimes do that. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living in Shavasti, in the eastern park, in the palace of Migara's mother. Then, when it was evening, the Venerable Ananda rose from meditation, went to the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, he sat down at one side and said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Shakyan country, where there is a town of the Shakyans named Nagararaka. There, Venerable Sir, I heard and learned this from the Blessed One's own lips, saying, Now, Ananda, I often abide in voidness. Did I hear that correctly, Venerable Sir? Did I learn that correctly? Did I attend to that correctly? Did I remember that correctly? Certainly, Ananda. You heard that correctly, learned that correctly, attended to that correctly, and remembered that correctly. As formerly, Ananda, so now too, I often abide in shunyata, voidness. Ananda, just as this palace of Migara's mother is void of elephants, cattle, horses, mares, void of gold and silver, void of an assembly of laymen and laywomen, and there is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the sangha of bhikkhus. 
so too, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of the village, not attending to the perception of people, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. His mind enters into that perception of forest and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbance there might be dependent on the perception of a village, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of people, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of village. This field of perception is void of the perception of people. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of forest. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there. But as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thusly. This is present. Thus Ananda, this is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. Again Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of people, not attending to the perception of forest, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. His mind enters into that perception of earth and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. Just as a bull's hide becomes free from folds and creases when fully stretched with a hundred pegs, so too a bhikkhu, not attending to any of the ridges and hollows of this earth, to the rivers and ravines, the tracks of stumps and thorns, the mountains and uneven places. A bhikkhu attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. His mind enters into that perception of earth and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of people, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of forest, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of people. This field of perception is void of the perception of forest. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of earth. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there, but as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thusly. This is present. Thus Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. 
like Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of forest, not attending to the perception of earth, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space. His mind enters into that perception of the ayatana, or base, of infinite space, and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of forest, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of earth, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space. He understands. This field of perception is void of the perception of forest. This field of perception is void of the perception of earth. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there, but as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thusly. This is present. Thus, Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. Again, Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of earth, not attending to the perception of the base of infinite space, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. His mind enters into that perception of the base of infinite consciousness and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be, dependent on the perception of earth, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of earth. This field of perception is void of the perception of the base of infinite space. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there, but as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thusly. This is present. Thus Ananda, this too, is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. Again, Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of the base of infinite space, not attending to the perception of the base of infinite consciousness, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness. His mind enters into that perception of the base of nothingness and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, Whatever disturbances there might be, dependent on the perception of the base of infinite space, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be, dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness. He understands. This field of perception is void of the perception of the base of infinite space. This field of perception is void of the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there, but as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thusly. This is present. Thus Ananda, this too, is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. Again Ananda, a bhikkhu, 
not attending to the perception of the base of infinite consciousness, not attending to the perception of the base of nothingness, attends to the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. His mind enters into that perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of infinite consciousness, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of the base of infinite consciousness. This field of perception is void of the perception of the base of nothingness. There is present only this non-voidness, namely the singleness dependent on the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there, but as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thusly. This is present. Thus, Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. Again, Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of the base of nothingness, not attending to the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception, attends to the singleness dependent on the signless concentration of mind. Animita ceto samadhi. His mind enters into this signless concentration of mind and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of nothingness, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the perception of the base of neither perception or non-perception, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely, that connected with the six bases, the six sense bases, that are dependent on this body and conditioned by life. He understands this field of perception is void of the perception of the base of nothingness. This field of perception is void of the perception of the base of neither perception or non-perception. There is present only this non-voidness, namely that connected with the six sense bases that are dependent on this body and conditioned by life. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there, but as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thusly. This is present. Thus, Ananda, this too is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness. <clears throat> Again, Ananda, a bhikkhu, not attending to the perception of the base of nothingness, not attending to the perception of the base of neither perception nor non-perception, attends to the singleness dependent on the signless concentration of mind. His mind enters into that signless concentration of mind and acquires confidence, steadiness, and resolution. He understands thus, this signless concentration of mind is conditioned and volitionally produced. But whatever is conditioned and volitionally produced is impermanent, subject to cessation. When he knows and sees thus, 
his mind is liberated from the taint of sensual desire, liberated from the taint of being, and liberated from the taint of ignorance. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. He understands. Birth is destroyed. The holy life has been lived. What has to be done has been done. There is no no more coming into any state of being. He understands thus, whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the taint of sensual desire, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the taint of being, those are not present here. Whatever disturbances there might be dependent on the taint of ignorance, those are not present here. There is present only this amount of disturbance, namely that connected with the six sense bases that are dependent on this body and conditioned by life. He understands this field of perception is void of the taint of sensual desire. This field of perception is void of the taint of being. And this field of perception is void of the taint of ignorance. There is present only this non-voidness, namely that connected with the six sense bases that are dependent on this body and conditioned by life. Thus he regards it as void of what is not there. But as to what remains there, he understands that which is present thusly. This is present. Thus Ananda, this is his genuine, undistorted, pure descent into voidness, supreme and unsurpassed. Ananda, whatever recluses or Brahmins in the past who entered upon and abided in the pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness, all entered upon and abided in the same pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness. They all will enter upon and abide in the same pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness. And whatever recluses and Brahmins in the present enter upon and abide in pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness, all enter upon and abide in the same pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness. Therefore, Ananda, you should train thus. We will enter upon and abide in pure, supreme, unsurpassed voidness. This is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. And there you have it. So, questions? So, um, this has been super informative as far as my meditation practice goes. I think I see it differently in that by my, uh, by my um, well, first of all, developing concentration enough to focus on, for example, uh, infinite space, let's say, then, uh, then the, uh, the forest and all the other things that would be there, I'm, 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 my focus is here, so they are all gone, right? The voidness, oh, I, that's so clear. And this this pathway through the it's really kind of uh, seems so simple now. Thank you. <laughs> yep. I was just interested in the relationship between the use of the word "not" in the phrases and the use of the word "void." So mm. the translational relationship between the core tr- uh, language and English 
what is the relationship between not and void? There's three, there's three to four negations. There's non, <coughs> there's not, there's void, and there's nothingness. But yep. I would think that these texts are not using those interchangeably. So do you know what the significance of saying something about not voidness or void versus non? Yes, and that gets into what I referred to at the beginning of the talk, which is about, I wanted to talk about sort of the genealogy of this idea of emptiness. So, great question. So we'll start with this, obviously with this text, and what it's presenting as this idea of voidness. And I'll try to get to the other, the ah, you know, non, and all of that as well. But indeed, this sutra seems to be very clear about what it means by shunyata, or emptiness. And it, it's in that idea of um, just as the palace of Migari's mother is void of elephants. And just like the San Francisco Dharma Collective here is void of elephants. Gira- There's no giraffes or elephants here, right? So there is shunyata concerning elephants. So there does seem to be in this early Buddhist idea that shunyata was this lack, right? Like a lacking idea, which is profound unto itself, this idea of presence and non-presence or, or presence and lacking. So indeed, the voidness, and, and the, the reason why the Theravada tends to lean towards voidness is because they are referring to a, a void, a lacking of something, which is different than, a little different than non this, non that, and all of that, because it's like this not presence, right? And, and if you followed the, um, well, Matt just said it, but if you followed the meditation of the sutra, in the beginning, we were in the forest with the bhikkhus and basically in, in the vihara and all of that. And the first order of business is the Buddha sort of said, okay, as your foundation of mindfulness, bring your mind to forest, like just the forest. And there's sort of this like a, a kind of a play with the, you know, this euphemism of, of not being able to see the forest for the trees idea of like, what is the relationship between forest singular and the many multiple trees so there's already an interesting thing that's going on with this idea of meditating on like forest as one even though it's multiple right but again when I said that traditionally you can kind of only achieve dhyana this meditative state on more simplistic things the Buddha then moves to this idea of earth alright and so what's happening in the sutra though is that Ideally, what's happening is, is that when one moves from forest to earth, one is only meditating on earth, solidity, the earth element. And my field of perception, as it says, is void of elephants and people and burritos and all, you know, anything of this village is gone. It's not on my mind. It's not disturbing my mind. I really enjoy this sutra for the language of disturbance. It's talking about the mind as being disturbed by these things. And so by not, kind of not entertaining them in a way, and this is achieved through literally closing one's eyes sometimes, but it's also a a drishti, a gaze, in the sense that it's a soft drishti, a soft gaze that's not on anything. Or you're only on earth or solidity. And I think it'll be helpful, and we have the time. I want to share with you a way of thinking about um, sati, 
this uh, idea of mindfulness. Um, so this, um, in Buddhism, whenever you hear mindfulness, they're referring to sati, or in Sanskrit, it's called smrti. Smrti. Same, same word, same idea. And traditionally, actually, smrti meant to remember something, to recall something. Um, in, in many ways, like to, um, uh, like to remember a past saying or to remember a fallen hero was uh, smrti. Uh, to bring them to mind. In Buddhism, though, this old Sanskrit idea of remembrance becomes this idea of mindfulness. And, you know, traditionally, either, you know, you have your tenkishina, or there is the uh, satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness, which are traditionally four, the body, sensations, uh, mind state, and truths, or dharmas. But the practice, regardless of whether it's your body or a disc of yellow, doesn't matter. I want to focus on what's happening with the mind in regards to sati. Um, so I've shared this with a few people, and I often teach this. Well, this will work. This is all rough. This is all analogous, too, by the way. So here's a way of thinking about uh, Buddhism's uh, understanding of sati. This pie chart, and I have on the board here sort of three pie charts. And these pie charts will represent, uh, it could represent uh, concentration or awareness, consciousness, or something to that effect. And the way you can think about it is, is that in this first pie chart, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and actually I'll go like nine, you know, whatever. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine pie sections, right? The way you can think about this is each of these sections of the pie represents something that I'm, that my mind is conscious of, right? So I'm thinking about what I'm talking about. It's a nice, good quarter of my mind right now is what the, the shit coming out of my mouth, right? Then I got, maybe I'm thinking about, maybe I'm a little hungry, so I have a little corner of my mind that's thinking about what I'm going to eat later, and then I got some self-conscious things or whatever, so I'm thinking about that, and then I got that. So all these pie pieces are other things that are on my mind besides just the teaching or something to that effect, right? What I'm going to describe for you is a process of sati, of mindfulness, in that if I could get rid of a few of those pie pieces and get it down to just one, two, three, four, five, the circumference of my awareness gets bigger. There's an equation here. The more pieces of the pie, the smaller and tighter the concentration. Oh, I'm only thinking about this many? My consciousness is bigger. Oh, I'm thinking about only four things? It's even bigger. If you could get it down to just two, which is you and the focus of your meditation, whether it's the element of earth or whether it's the body, uh, the root, you know, uh, the kaya or whatever, the idea is that if I could get it down to just me and it, and I'm not thinking about anything else, and I'm certainly not thinking about time in terms of before and after, it's really just me and it. We're, I mean, we're talking about you know a giant, giant circle. That's split in two, me and it, 
but it's huge. If you then could get rid of that, we're talking upeksha, we're talking dhyana absorption, the circumference would be the size of the universe. It would be infinite, right? Or that idea of whatever, you get what I'm saying. So the idea is, is that if we had samadhi, samadhi, by the way, is when the line is gone and there's no binary dualism. There's, that's samadhi. Dhyana is typically still me and it. I'm meditating on the bowl or on the earth disk or whatever. And I'm using that object of meditation, that base or that foundation of meditation. I'm using it to exclude all these other things to get it just down to that one thing so that my consciousness can be bigger, freer, broader. But as it is now, with this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing, my consciousness goes, and it feels like it's between my ears and behind my eyes and stuck in my body because of the amount of things that are on my mind. And again, every time you get rid of a line, it gets a little bigger, 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 bigger. So that's kind of a fun equation for thinking about. Oh, and by the way, what we're talking about is mindfulness, full of mind. So when the circumference of this thing is the size of the universe, you're full of mind. That's all you are. Infinite consciousness at a certain point. (laughs) To be transcended to infinite nothingness. To be transcended to infinite neither nor, and so on and so on. But... Just think about that as a a way of thinking about mindfulness and concentration and awareness. And then this idea of voidness. So it's sort of the opposite in the sense of like, I could focus on the one thing, but then wrapped up in that is this lack of everything else. What is happening here, though, is that when you finally reach the very bottom to this signless concentration of mind, animita cheto samadhi. The idea is, you know, that there's something, and this is a really interesting sutra because I didn't, I don't know if you noticed the feedback loop that happens at this point. There's a little feedback loop that happens very similar to the original uh, Mahanidana Sutta, the the twelve link chain where Namarupa and Vijnana start to flip back on each other. I don't know if you guys remember that from the Mahanidana uh, discourse, but the same thing's happening here. But what is the Shunyata Vihara, the, the abode of emptiness? It's this signless concentration of mind. And I, the idea of that is that it's just voidness. So not, you know, void of elephants. Yeah, void of this, vo- void. Like, entirely. And you're kind of like, like floating in infinite space or something like that, right? Yes? I have two questions. So my first question is um, directly tied to the sutra. So you transcendence, right? So the, the sutra you read out is very transcendent. You go deeper, deeper, deeper. What I'm kind of missing or missed maybe in the text is maybe the other way around. Like, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. And I'm wondering in the text, maybe I missed this, does the text also talks about, but from empty, 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 you know, there's also from the void comes all appearances. Mm-hmm. And that was the feedback loop where actually okay. 
this line that I have here is that where we went actually from here was where he says, and then you recognize it's just the six, well, the language is the six sense bases that are dependent upon this body that's conditioned by life. And what, for me, that's really important because it brings it back to the practitioner, back to you. But in my understanding, and this is obviously not the be all to end all of understanding, but in my understanding of that, once you reach the rock bottom, so to speak, of the signless concentration of mind, there's still this person that's in a body made of six sense bases that's in the signless concentration of mind. But the thing about the Shunyata Vihara is that it's kind of like just the sense bases with nothing on them is what, how I understand the end of the suture where it brings it back to the practitioner in the forest with the other bhikkhus but that bhikkhu is liberated at the end of the sutra because on the basis of their senses are nothing, nothing disturbing them. And how this plays into the arhat, the path of the arhat or Buddhahood, is this idea of like you can really imagine, you know, Buddhism sort of describes all of our senses, our ears, our eyes, our nose, our tongue, the body, you can imagine like our ears and our eyes and all that as like little hands grabbing what it likes. You know, hearing, it's like, oh, little ears grabbing stuff. And when the senses grab stuff, meaning pays attention to, is disturbed by, emotionally affected by, right? Those little grabbings are, of course, the source of dukkha. That's noble truth number three or number two or whatever, right? The idea that the clinging with the senses is bringing about the disturbance, right? So what would it be like to just have the data or the sense come and you're not, a, a Buddha's not an idiot, so information comes as processed, but what if the little hands didn't grab onto it? That is my understanding of what's being described here is when the six sense bases are operating, but the dust isn't staying on them. The little hands are not grabbing the information or the data or the perceptions in that way. Mm-hmm. I have a question. So that, do you, are you saying and does the text and say form arises through conditioning? Yeah, well, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the, the basic premise of the difference between the Rupa Dattu and the A Rupa Dattu, the formless realm, the realm of form and the formless realm. Ultimately, the realm of form is just discrimination in that way. Mental, just mental discrimination in that sense. Gnome was up for a minute. Yep. I'm having a hard time in light of that. The bottom? In light of the bottom. I, wanted, I need to get to this. I want to talk a lot about the signless. This idea of the signless is like pure Mahayana. And it's this interesting little idea that appears very rarely in Theravada texts. And it's like, you know, right at the end of this, it's like, by the way, the signless. All, not all, but major Mahayana sutras are all about the signless. And the empty and the wishless. These are the triad uh, in Mahayana. So I want to talk about that. But I want to make sure we're all together before we get to the... What I was going to say about it was that in light of that, then what is perception? Neither perception nor non-perception. Because I'm saying with my understanding of that. Yeah. 
I'll go. Th- I want to go through them. So, yeah, yeah. but any other loose ends before I do that? Just in terms of the language, uh, this term of like singleness. And singleness. Yeah, not the singleness. Yes. The singleness of the consideration, which is kind of almost like the gateway to the down the steps. Mm-hmm. And then, if you can speak of the singleness instead of non-dualistic, or what? This is what I was talking about with my pie chart here. Singleness meaning if you just have you and it. Yeah. Just so, one thing. Okay, so the, the process of singleness is going from many to few. Like, because what, what's my problem is when I think of singleness is, oh, there is more things that are... Like, if, if you have less things that are single, uh-huh. that's the process of having less things or just unity, the idea of unity. Hmm. So what is singleness means it's like less things that are single. That's what it means in that English word. Um, hmm. I'm not sure I'm following you. The idea in the sutra of singleness is just this idea of one thing. You pay attention to just one one thing. And as I was saying at the beginning, the idea is actually forest is actually dharmically too many. Even though it's a single idea, it's only, again, traditionally, these ten things that are, are um, elemental in that sense of non-divisible any further. And so they allow for the development of dhyana because they can be single, <laughs> yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm confusing singlelessness or like the thing of less of it or the just yeah, and it is. I do think I want to share that. So my the mega pie chart that just has the division of me and it. This is singleness. Okay. In the sense of like, there's the perceiver and the perceived, but there is only one object of perception. You're talking about when that even dissolves. And then it's like, oh, yeah, unity or something. And then it's like, does that really make sense anymore? Maybe because of what you were getting at. But, yeah, so that gets complicated in an interesting way. Say again. If the the last boundary breaks down between I and it, there's no difference between me and all things. Yep. Okay. Correct. Uh, akasha or space is just as I described it originally. Another wonderful uh, example of space is this part of the bowl, right? Mysterious part of a bowl, the most functional, and yet nothing in that way, right? So akasha is that idea of space, and it's related to voidness, it's related to emptiness, but it's its own deal. Um, in fact, I was saying to somebody earlier about this idea of akasha is very, very related to the Western notion of the ether in the sense that it, if light is a wave, a wave of what? <laughs> like, of what is it a wave of? And so for a long time, there was this idea of the ether, which was what light was a wave of. That idea has been abandoned, but the same philosophical ideas that go along with the ether are wrapped up in this idea of akasha. It's a, fa- it's a really interesting idea. We move from that to our good old vijnana, 
We know about vijnana, right? Consciousness. Now, of course, we know in Buddhism there are six consciousness, six vijnanas, seven vijnana, eight vijnana, nine, ten vijnanas, many a vijnana. This is a realm of infinite vijnana, infinite consciousness, right? The idea being that space or akasha, uh, remember when I showed you what akasha was? It required your vijnana to process what I just told you about, right? So infinite space to be understood relies upon vijnana. When that idea of consciousness or a self vijnana, vijnana-ing, consciousness-ing, when that's abandoned, you arrive at this base of nothingness. Ah, Kim Kanye. No Kim and Kanye. Just, just <laughs> gone. Nothingness. I know. So, <laughs> so nothingness is this, uh, uh, Kim is like nothingness, which is not void, not empty, meaning shinyata. It is its own idea. And what it is, is actually this idea of like nothing, nothing, which is different than void, lacking. It's, you know, it gets very complicated. Questions about nothingness. <laughs> so, so does Akitanya emit out of Vishnana? Like do these emit from each other or they are? I mean, really, if you think of my expanding circumference of the circle, this is getting broader and broader and broader. Meaning that, you know, first we're in the forest with the bhikkhus, but then there's just this earth realm of solidity I'm in. But then it's like, I guess transcend might be a, a word, but you kind of go past that to a broader sense of just, oh, like space is an idea. So then I'm in a realm of infinite ideation, uh, infinite consciousness, but then that means there's somebody being conscious, a brain or, you know, ideas. So let's abandon, let's abandon it all. That's nothingness. And it is this idea of like nothingness, but then that too is a concept predicated on somethingness, I suppose, right? It's all conditional. And so we abandon all ideas to arrive at naiva samya asamya, neither samya nor non samya. And if you remember, samya is this interesting aggregate, one of the skandhas, third skandha, right? This sort of um, uh, associated thought patterns and the way the mind breaks the world up, the way the mind understands the world. This is a realm of neither that kind of association process, but not not that association process. It's this non-dual odd state that again is neither nor. Typically, all these dhyanas, the arupa dhyanas, end there. And if you make it to neither perception nor non-perception, traditionally in the Theravada, there is a karmic memory wipe, actually, that happens when you reach this state where all of your past samskara-type karma is wiped clean like, a, like a, a, a hard drive. And they actually say, traditionally in the Theravada tradition, you have to have achieved this state and gotten the memory wipe in order to achieve the later states, that we're actually all subject to our past 
conditionings and karmas until we reach this kind of totally still state of neither perception nor non-perception. Yep. When you use the word vinyana in the transit and make it infinite consciousness, is it because we're trying to say that there are an infinite number of things that consciousness can take on? No. It's more of an idea of one mind, the size of the universe, imagining the universe, kind of an idea. I need to understand that instead as unlimited consciousness? Um... I'm just curious. I know that in other places infinite shows up, but I'm wondering why, when infinite has to do with like something about countability and unlimitation, doesn't have that connotation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because when you took away in your pie chart all the things, what happens is there are no limitations in the pie chart, right? And then Absolutely. And then the other notion, when we're drawing the lines, when you the one on the left. Yep. What's interesting is that that is infinitely divisible in the sense that there's an <laughs> infinite number of ways we can skew it. The thing. So I'm, I was just curious about this relationship. Um, yeah, great, great question, great insight too. Um, honestly, I'm just relying on tradition that these things are traditionally translated as the the realm of infinite space consciousness and this and that. I th- yeah, make a great case linguistically. Um, so I was wondering if because of the connection to nothingness, because I might think there's a difference mm. to unlimitedness and nothingness than I would think to infinite and yeah. mm-hmm. and I definitely, I, I think your reasoning is good, but I would warn against getting too hung up on semantics okay. in that regard, of sort of missing the forest for the trees, so to speak. Yep. Um, um, is the science concentration of minds, um, is this the same thing like samadhi, or is the samadhi would be the next step? So it is a samadhi. And actually, traditionally, these four states are samadhi. So traditionally, the four dhyanas the first dhyana of joy, the second dhyana of delight or whatever, and the third dhyana of contentment, and then the fourth dhyana of upeksha, those are considered the dhyanas. Upeksha, or the fourth dhyana, is the entranceway to samadhi, and the first sort of stage of samadhi is infinite space, traditionally. So there is some sort of like subtle relationship between upeksha and infinite space, kind of, sort of. It gets tricky. But samadhis are, are, these are all samadhis. And then again, traditionally, this list ends here. But this one is talking, because remember, this, this sutra interestingly started with Ananda saying, did I hear you right? That you said you, you go to the shunyata vihara? That's actually what the text says. Not that you abide in emptiness, but that you go to the Shunyata Vihara. Did I hear that right? And Ananda's like, what What is that? It's like kind of mysterious, even in the sutra. And then he traditionally would have ended here, but he ends this one by introducing this Animita Chitto Samadhi. So it is a Samadhi. I couldn't find out what Chitto meant. But animita is a fascinating concept, and I've etymologically been curious of, about if it has any relationships to the Greeks and animated, animita, because it's very interesting. But this animita is the word for signless. And the thing about it is that if you've been studying with me, I often talk about these things called lakshana. This is a Buddhist idea. It's a quality or a characteristic, um, sometimes mark. But there's this idea of qualities, 
And if you haven't, again, if you haven't studied with me, lakshana in Buddhism are qu qualities of things. So for example, the qualities of this object are that it's round, hollow, uh, goldish brass colored, because color is a lakshana. Um, it's the size of it, that it fits in my hand, that's a lakshana, so size. Uh, the perception that it's one thing, that's a lakshana. So lakshana are everything, meaning the qualities of what makes a thing a thing. Um, like, oh, look, a chair. Well, why do you think that's a chair? Because it has the qualities of a chair. It has four legs, it has a back, I can sit on it, yada, yada, yada. So I talk a lot about lakshana um, in, in my Dharma talks. And what I often talk about is the practice of removing the lakshana. This is a meditation, the idea. And I don't want to get too far afield in this, but, you know, the notion, um, I often use the little green pillow as an example of this, but these lakshana, right? These lakshana, oh, by the way, duh, sign. sign. <laughs> lakshana is also often translated as sign. So signless. The thing is, is that I used to kind of I guess make a, a, a made-up word, which is alakshana, like no lakshana, which is actually not a Sanskrit word. You can't always just add A to the front of something. <laughs> if you wanted to talk about the lack of signs, the lack of lakshana, it's called animita. That's what means when you have no lakshana, no qualities. And so very quickly, I just want to share with you, so here is our rectangle or square, I guess, right? Square, green, pillow. Little squishy pillow, right? So squishy, lakshana, green, lakshana, square, lakshana, all that, right? What I'm about to say is true of all lakshana, but it's helpful to start with color. Because the idea is, is that one is inclined to think that this is a green pillow and that the greenness is possessed by the pillow, right? That it's a, it's a quality of the pillow. It's a lakshana of the pillow to be green, that it possesses it. And so when you see it, it possesses it, and you see it, it possesses it. But we know from colorblindness that that greenness is not held by this. It is a dependently originated quality dependent on my unique eyes with its rods and cones that decipher vibrations of whatever certain ways that's similar to how you all do it, but the greenness is not in the pillow, held by it. And then the, the classic Buddhist retort is that, oh, then the greenness must be in my eyes. But my eyes are brown, my eyes aren't green. So it's a great example of dependent origination to recognize the greenness is not held by the pillow, nor is it held by my eye. It is a lakshana or a quality that emerges when my particular eye encounters this particular pillow. But the delusion, the ignorance, is that it's possessed by the pillow. That's the delusion. It looks like it, right? Now, again, what I just said about color is actually applicable to all the lakshana. Yep. 
meaning the squareness of it, is a projection of your mind dependent upon the elementary school you went to to think about the world, your samya, your language game you're playing and all of that, right? So what is the signless? The signless is when you realize this is not green, square, or squishy. Those are all dependently originated concepts that you can experience dependent upon this, but it's not here. This is actually signless. Although it appears to have qualities. In fact, all things do. That's what makes things things is their lakshana. But what I just told you, what I just dropped on you, this dependent origination of lakshana, all lakshana are dependently originated, and therefore, you know, you could think of it temporarily as, oh, okay, like the greenness is sort of half the pillow, half my mind, right? It's sort of like it takes the two of them to be that. But it's not even really that. It's all when the two get together. This is pratitya samutpata, dependent origination. And so again, if you understand that, you understand that the object is, so A, the greenness is not there. It's in, in the in-between, the squareness in the in-between. Um, certainly, if this is pretty, is in the in-between and all of that, right? That idea of it being in the in-between, it means that the green square pillow is like, it's like here, right? Because it's in my mind, emerging. But I get deluded and think it's out here, and I love green square pillows. I love them. So there's a relationship between desire and attachment and lakshana. Because in fact, if you really get down to it in terms of Buddhism, lakshana are what we desire or what we don't desire. And I all, every time I say this, in Buddhism, this desire problem, the, the problem of desire, it cuts two ways. Desire can be like, yeah, gimme. But desire can also be like, get away. I don't want it. That is a form of desire, a desire to not have it. Okay, so signless is this idea of like the, the dharmic truth of things, that they are without signs, but we don't kind of always know that, or we don't, certainly don't move through the world that way. And so this whole process is actually the removal of the lakshana, because if you start removing lakshana, you will quickly arrive at space. Like, because if you, if you, it's like, okay, uh, color, shape, number, size, aesthetics. If you get rid of all these lakshana, what's left? I often ask this question. It is truly a meditation. What's left? By the way, so because it's getting on, I need to do this. This signless concentration of mind, this is this idea of signless. But again, in the early, clearly in this sutra, shunyata meant not. Again, like there's no elephants here, right? There's no bowl here either, <laughs> is the point of this exercise. (laughs) 
you, you, you're smart enough to know there's no elephants, but are you smart enough to know there's no bulls either? Right? That's where it gets tricky because elephants are easy. Obviously, there's no elephants. Are there any bulls, though? The bull in the room. What's that? Instead of the elephant in the room, the bull in the room. Exactly. <laughs> Start talking about the white bull in the room. Okay. But this, what, so I've already sort of been, been laying the breadcrumbs for this. Where this idea of shunyata goes from voidness or lacking, if we, if we understand that the shape, the size, the color, the qualities, all of these things are projected by the mind, not held by the object, dependently originated, right? Then what does that say about this? It says it's empty. The, the more Mahayana Nagarjuna, who's an Indian philosopher who went really wild with this idea of emptiness, his whole thing was he basically did the signless concentration of mind and was like, oh, well, if I pull back all these lakshana, there's nothing there. That's emptiness. And the, whether it's old school Theravada, new school Mahayana, high tech Vajrayana, the idea is, is that in all of them, you never want to, you never really want to say that the pillow is empty. It doesn't actually make any sense to say that. There's this understanding of emptiness that is applicable to all phenomena. But to say the pillow is empty, it puts this pillow up there. It starts with the pillow that then has this quality of emptiness. And you've turned shunyata into a lakshana. Don't do it. It's wiser to avoid that. Emptiness is not a quality of this. Emptiness is the removal of all qualities, if that makes sense. Fred. Yeah, um, can you say a little more about uh, in understanding that this last barrier, once it's broken down between I and the universe, where the circle is just full and there's no difference between mind and everything? Yep. What's the relationship between that and signlessness and also the wiping of the, the memory? Huh. Well, I, now that you say that, I can certainly see uh, a relationship between passing through this stage where these samya are equalized in some sense because truly lakshana and the decipherment of lakshana or qualities is based on samya. This is classic five skandhas kind of theory. Um, so I can see that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what else I can. Are the four samadhis? Uh, is is that experience a sequence? Is that occurring all at once? Is there, there's actually. Yeah, I would say actually that there's sort of, just like the dhyanas and the brahmaviharas. People teach it different ways. Different sutras speak about it different ways. It is always a, in this, 
So, for example, this one, they're descending. The Brahma Viharas, they're ascending. I think from a Buddhist point of view, I think it's wise not to get too hung up on that type of stuff. And, they'll, and in a way, the idea is like, yeah, these things are sort of sequential, but not necessarily sequential, if you understand what I mean. It's, yeah, it's tricky. I guess what I'm asking is, if, is there an interdependence of some kind between coming to understand space, coming to understand consciousness? I would expect that they kind of feed each other. If one arrives at an awareness... Let me just clarify with this. With all of, with the process of my pie graphs, with the Buddha's description of going from the forest to earth, down through these things, I think it's best, again, going back to my pie graphs, it's really helpful to think of this as a letting go of ideas and things you're holding on to. It's not gaining, you're not going anywhere and you're not gaining anything if that makes sense. And so, well, what does it look like when I let go of Lakshana or I let go? Oh, you start to slip into a a state of mind that feels like you're floating in infinite space. And then if you let go of that, it'll feel like you're floating in a realm of infinite consciousness. And if you let go of that, it'll feel like you're floating in a realm of nothingness. And if you let go of that further, so it's just a a letting go. Again, I cannot um, mime and pantomime this enough. Buddhism is about not this. This causes suffering. And then it's like, so free. Buddhism is about nothing. Well, obviously, and that's, you know, we can say that, but do we know what we mean when we say that, right? It's just sounding cool. But the idea, again, is this idea that the the action of the movement is, is not clinging and just recognizing that the clinging, it hurts. It causes suffering. Like, literally, hold a fist for five minutes. It'll start to hurt. And the idea is, is that our mind is like a fist holding to drishti, holding to views and ideas very tightly and we're exhausted by it. Our shoulders and our ears because of it, all of that. We're holding on so tight. And the practice is let go, let go, let go. Let go, let go. Infinite, let go. Keep letting go. And the idea is that if you let go of it all, you'll reach this state of neither perception or non-perception. Never been there. Can't tell you about it. But that's what they're talking about. Yes. Sorry, yeah. Oh, yeah. I already answered. Okay. Are these the same? Are these are the jhanic states then? Also confusing. Yes. So uh, Pali is jhana. Okay. Sanskrit's dhyana. It's often very helpful to know this word dhyana is jhana and that they're the same idea. What's confusing is that sometimes these are the eight dhyanas. And then sometimes these are called samadhis. And there's actually a very interesting etymological and practical relationship between dhyana and samadhi. The root of both of them is d, d-h-i, to see. Samadhi is same seeing, which speaks to a certain singularity of seeing, not a dualistic seeing. Dhyana is this sort of like, you know, it's tricky. Dhyana, yeah, it's very tricky, but it's like riding the wave of D, of vision. It's tricky, but so they're related, and, and it's not wrong to say that these are dhyanas. It's not wrong. 
But it's also not wrong to say there's samadhis in that way. And this can get into some really minutia of Buddhism about what's what and all of that. Yep. Um, going back to the point you were making a little while ago, um, can you accidentally, or is it in the space of how it's constructed, cling to unclinging, to not clinging? Or does it, that just doesn't work out? And so you're trying to, like, I don't want to cling to states that arise, and then kind of a meta-reflection to start thinking too much about clinging, mm-hmm. like not clinging. I don't absolutely. know, does it work out that way? Or oh, absolutely, absolutely. Clinging is, clinging is clinging, and clinging can be clung to anything in that okay, way. So you can, like, accidentally, while you're trying to not cling, cling Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there, I mean, I've never really heard it talked about in terms of that. It's usually, what you're describing is usually talked about in terms of the pursuit of enlightenment. And that paradox of like, but you just told me that enlightenment was what happens when I don't want anything, like desire anything. So then how does, and, and actually from a Buddhist Mahayana point of view, it's like, yes, exactly. Because it's sort of rather paradoxical in that way. But Yeah, yeah, please. So can it also happen that you, can you have like an emptiness of emptiness? Uh, indeed, indeed. In fact, I was just reading a text earlier uh, this afternoon. So this is, a, this is a great question. So again, this idea of shunyata, you've got, I think, five, six little sutras in here. In fact, when you read the other ones, it's not exactly clear why they're even in the shunyata section. They like, don't even talk about shunyata. So maybe they just crammed them in there. Who knows? So it's a very little discussed topic in the Theravada. Again, it's sort of like Ananda's like, did I hear that right? What is this shunyata thing? The Mahayana goes crazy with it. becomes the foundation of the whole philosophy in a way. And in that school, there's all kinds of talk about like the emptiness of emptiness and like because they recognize that emptiness can become an idea and so there needs to even... It gets all into that. I, on that. On that vein, though, I want to introduce you very quickly. What happens in... Mahayana Buddhism is that you get these um, these three they're called, they have a bunch of different names or these three liberations Um, so in the Mahayana tradition they speak of these three liberations liberation via emptiness, signlessness and wishlessness If you're more trained in the Theravada, you may be familiar with the three marks of reality, that all things are empty, without a self, and a source of suffering. I think those are right. This is sort of a Mahayana revamping of that same idea. The Mahayana focuses more on these, that this is how reality should be viewed. All things are empty, as I just described. So it's not that the bowl is empty, it's that what I'm perceiving of as a bowl, its actual nature is not that. It's a, you know, it's just a pile of lakshana. Just a pile of lakshana that appear to be something. But you start taking the lakshana away and you arrive at no thingness, right? So that's emptiness. And because all phenomena are ultimately empty, all phenomena have no signs, no marks or lakshana. Again, I just told you, all the lakshana that you can attribute to this are dependently arising in your mind. This is actually empty and therefore no sign, 
Gods, no Marx, no Lakshana. If you understand that, you will understand this idea of wishlessness or desirelessness. Desirelessness towards the signless because it's empty. Right? In a way, so this idea that, that emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness, or sometimes aimlessness, that these three are the maturation of the idea of shunyata in the Mahayana. So you don't see these three in the Theravada. You do see emptiness, absolutely. You do see signless, absolutely. And you do see, the, obviously, the notion of desirelessness. But this interesting triad that is based on dependent origination, therefore emptiness, therefore signless, therefore undesirable. It's what this word means. The world is undesirable, ultimately. And not undesirable in a, like, you should know better, you shouldn't desire it. It's a wisdom thing that there's nothing there to be desired. Everything that you desire is already in your head. You already possess it. You already are it. It is already your own most intimate self. That's the irony of it. You want what you already have in that way. It's this, that's sati. It's coming back and remembering. Exactly. Exactly. On that note, I did want to mention, though, that basically this process of sati, mindfulness, sure, mindfulness founded on these brings about upeksha, brings about peace and tranquility. What happens when you start placing your meditation on infinite space? That's the idea I want you to sort of walk away with. It's like, it's one thing to bring about a peaceful dhyanic state by putting your mindfulness on one object, but what happens when you put your mindfulness on an abstract notion like infinite space? Things get wild, apparently. I was wondering about the signless concentration of mind, the blue arrow going Mm -hmm. back to the forest, and there's that multiple times repeated, the six senses. This arrow is going back to our six sense bases. Yeah, and but so are they at that point when you're in a signless concentration of mind state, are they, um, I don't know how to say it, but they're just pure. They're not like nothing, they're, they're just, I mean, you still have those senses, right? Mm-hmm. But this is what I was referring to is, yeah, you have the senses, but the, the things aren't sticking to your There's senses. sticking to them. So yeah. just sort of... Passing through. Processing and passing through, letting go, and all of that. But not disturbed, not affected, certainly not clung to. So the, the, the reason, what I was asking before is, like, how does that, how is that then relate to perception or non-perception? Because it seems like maybe I'm misunderstanding perception. Yeah, I mean, especially what, what's more important about this is actually this neither nor. Okay. Forget perception, okay. samya. We're talking about a state like conscious nor not conscious okay. is what's implied in this state is that it's like you're not conscious, but you're not not conscious. And it's like, well, 
what is that it like? And it's like, you just got to go find out type of a thing. But it's not like this, okay. if you know what I mean. So there folk- is perception in that if you follow the blue arrow back up there, there is perception or not. My feeling about the feedback loop back to the sixth sense spaces is because... Okay, so next week, by the way, so next week you're all ready. We're all ready. We're doing the Heart Sutra oh, next week yay. because now you know. Now you'll know. It'll be like, oh, oh, I got it, Avilokiteshvara. But the idea, so the, the, the reveal or the punchline of the Heart Sutra, right, is that even the skandhas are empty. The importance of that, and come back next week. I'll go into more detail. The importance of that, though, is that in the Theravada or in the early Pali tradition, the five skandhas were real. The self was empty. There was no self, no Atman. There were actually five skandhas. But then this idea of lakshana, signlessness, gets applied to the skandhas. What happens when you start going crazy with this idea of emptiness? You get Mahayana Buddhism. That's the idea. So hard search for next week, which is going to be a straight, just, you know, whoop, right into it from this. All right? That's great. Any other? Uh, yes. Question. Yes. We have the Vihara at the top and also at the bottom. Sunyata Vihara, the forest Vihara. Yeah, and this is what I also started with this idea of the abode. Um, Viharas are these abodes, and again, when we like last week when we did the Brahma Viharas, the idea is is that okay, I'm going to start my meditation, and I'm in this Vihara. See you later. I'm going to go to the Brahma Vihara. I'm going to go to where Brahma's at. I'm going to go to the the you know Mudita Vihara. I'm going to go to the net. That's where I'll be. You, you know where to find me. I'm in that Vihara. Well, you know where to find me. I'm in the Shunyata Vihara which is a totally beautiful, mystical, profound idea, by the way. And, and is it relevant that the others are not viharas? And they're ayatanas? Yes. Okay. Think, I mean, I give this all to you because I, I know some people are thinking about this and some people are thinking about this, but if you're thinking about ayatanas from the Mahanidana, the 12-link chain of causation, and you know that the links are actually ayatanas, then these become very interesting links in the chain. In terms of escaping the, it, they're like a exit. Like a, if you think of it as like a freeway, they're like little exit signs to get off, right? It's like hey, <laughs> the infinite consciousness over this way, but we're just trapped in the samsara. But these are little like emergency exits, ayatanas. Ayatana being where can I put my, my? Oh, I'll put it on a desire, or I'll put it on this. How about I put it on infinite consciousness? As an ayatana, yeah. And then they result in this visiting this vihara. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, though, each of these corresponds to a, a, one of the 21 deva realms. Oh. So they are real places, in theory, that you could... That is a great place. yourself. Yes, and that's a great place for me to try to, to end this, because it's going a little long. It is a very interesting... Thing to think about in Buddhism about like the Brahma Viharas are they places or are they not are they mental states or are they actually geo like locatable right 
Same thing with these. Are they places or are they states of mind? What's the difference between those two things also, by the way? Um, I think where this actually culminates is in what's called Pure Land Buddhism. Because you should know that the pure lands are viharas. And the pure abodes of Amitabha Buddha were accessible via the exact same way as the Brahma viharas. In fact, it was kind of like, okay, so you want to go see Brahma? Okay, take a left and then a right, and you'll be at the Brahma viharas. But then there are these other all kinds of vihara, Buddha Vihara over here, Sukhavati Vyuha, Amitabha's Vihara. Yeah. And there is an un... Uh, there's people over here that say there are places. There's people over here that say, no, no, no. It's a peaceful state of mind in which I see all people as bodhisattvas on lotus flowers. Uh, some people say Amitabha's Pure Land is another planet. It's not even a meditative place. It's actually a... You, if you've got a rocket ship or you've got a mean samadhi, either way, you could go see Amitabha. So I just want, it's a great question. I want you to know that the Buddhist world is wide open to these things being places, being states of mind. Again, uh, being curious about the relationship between those two ideas, actually. Like, isn't your perception of you being here a state of mind type thing? So... On that beautiful, wonderful, ambiguous note, I'm going to call it a night. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. And again, I'll be here next Sunday doing the Heart Sutra. Wow.